Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I'm speaking with members of our excellent college counseling team, Tia Hill and Caitlin Barnt. Tia joined Davidson Day in 2013 as the Director of College Counseling, and Caitlin joined the office in 2016 in the role of College Counseling Associate. Having each found a college of best fit, Tia attended Furman University and Caitlin attended Queen's University of Charlotte, they now work one-on-one with students as guides so our patriots find success in college and beyond. Tia and Caitlin, thanks for being here today. So the first question I have is about your childhoods. So what was your childhood like and what were your school experiences like leading up to deciding where to go to college? So Tia, do you mind kicking us off? Sure. So I'm from Gastonia, which is just about 45 minutes away. My whole family is still there. We are a close family. I have an older brother, two years older than me. And then when I was 14, my baby sister came along. So a big age gap. And my husband always says I've got the baby of the family traits in the middle of the family (laughs) traits. Like I am attention seeking like baby, but I'm also somebody who can negotiate and just sort of fit in anywhere. I enjoyed high school, performed well, took challenging classes and always had a job. So I wasn't quite as involved in the school community, but I was involved in the larger Gastonia community. I worked at Honey Baked Ham, that was my first job. So making sandwiches, wrapping hams, wrapping turkeys. Also worked in an office at some point. And so just was always kind of busying myself with activities outside of the school setting. I also spent a lot of time at church. My dad was a pastor. And so the church was just a really integral part of our lives. And so I honestly spent probably just as much time in the church building as I did at home. A couple of questions about just growing up is so with your sister with that age gap that you have, what was that like when you're sort of like 14 and then you know there's a baby in the house and just sort of managing all of that? It sounds like around that time you're sort of starting to work and so you're probably balancing school, church, working. What was that like? Yeah, it you know, of course now we can't imagine our lives without Abigail, without my sister. At the time you know, just kind of rocks your world. Like it was such a change and it just changed every single aspect of life. But my parents truly did a fantastic job of helping to make sure the dynamics weren't such that I was helping be a caretaker. Had plenty of time with my sister and was able to engage with her, but was not surprisingly, the primary babysitter. And so that was a a good dynamic and a nice balance. And I don't know, it's interesting. It put things in perspective. You know, you've got a little person running around the house learning to speak while I'm studying calculus. (laughs) And her first year of school was my freshman year of college. So, you know, just kind of that really interesting comparison, like, it made things interesting for sure. Well, even for us, like there's a six year difference between our girls. And so just the different stages that they're in, it's just radically different. But then there's also times where they 
play really well together and, and everything, but it's just it's amazing thinking, you know, that Ruby's in fifth grade and Elise is like learning to read and it's just interesting balancing that. And then working, did your parents encourage you to get a job? They made it clear they weren't going to buy me a car <laughs> and there was the motivation. So it was pretty early on that I thought this is the way to make this happen. And so I did. I started working just as soon as I could and was saving very intentionally for a car and just, you know, general things I wanted that my parents weren't eager to buy for me. Is it common now for teenagers to have jobs? I don't know that it's common. I think Caitlin and I probably see or hear about a number of jobs just because our focus is, you know, with the older students at school. And so summer and I don't know, through the school year, it seems like we hear about it more and more, but I'd say, you know, less than half the students I work with have a job. Yeah, so different. I remember growing up 30 years ago, similar age, and you just needed a job. Like, otherwise, you couldn't buy the stuff you wanted. And Caitlin, you're from sunny Florida. So what was your childhood like? I was born and raised a Floridian. And so originally, my mom homeschooled me and only till kindergarten, and then I attended the local public schools my entire life. After elementary school, my brother, who was 13 months younger than me, decided that he wanted to bus to the IB, the International Baccalaureate schools across town. And so I essentially went through school kind of like an only child. And I made a really good group of girlfriends in middle school and stuck with them to this day. But my high school was about 2,000 plus students. And so it was significantly larger than the Davidson Day School experience and larger than my college experience. But close-knit friends always made it feel a bit smaller and a bit more connective. And as a Florida native, I'd never seen snow fall from the sky. I thought that was unbelievable. I didn't know what that would ever be like. And so I quickly found myself when thinking about college, not going much outside of the Carolinas. I wanted to play lacrosse in college, and so athletics was a kind of a driving force. In my search after high school, my dad and I did a road trip one summer. We drove through cornfields where I asked him if I had to go to the hospital, would anybody come find me? (laughs) We got lost by the old TomTom GPSs. If you can recall, everything wasn't on our phones. And so once I got to Queens, it wasn't an instantaneous decision. I didn't have love at first sight butterflies, but the quaint campus, beautiful neighborhood of Myers Park, minutes from the bigger city of Charlotte, hospital down the road. I don't know why I was so concerned about that, but I got hurt on a lot of family vacations and had done a well-rounded world tour of local area emergency rooms. So maybe that was what was sticking with me, but My school experience tied with my athletic experience and some of my narrow-minded thoughts about weather and location led me to deciding to find my home at Queens. And you've told me a great story before about playing lacrosse in Florida, basically that no one did. And then can you tell that story? So lacrosse uh, was growing in Florida. It was certainly not a hotbed. The Northeast was much more of a hotbed for Florida. And so playing, you weren't necessarily the most sought after kid by college coaches. And being from Florida, I had been told numerous times, oh, you're from Florida, we don't recruit from there. And so it was a lot of kind of 
me pushing my own agenda um, and wanting to play no matter what. And so that's where that kind of world tour was. My dad and I going to the schools that I had sought out and visiting with coaches, assistant coaches, players, admissions offices, and really advocating for myself through that process. Along with my club coaches, high school coach, there was, you know, it took an army to get us to that point. And Tia, your journey to Furman, how did that happen? Yeah, I wanted small liberal arts, and I knew I wanted to be within a drivable distance of home. So I had only four schools on my list that all fit that profile. And Furman just really stood out from the start. So I visited. I love the feel. I love the campus. I actually, on a campus tour, met a professor in the psychology department, Dr. Gil Einstein, who is, in fact, an Albert Einstein relative. That's cool. Yeah, he was wonderful. And I met him. He showed me around the lab space. He specifically showed me a lab space filled with rats that were used for a research methods course. And all of it just was so interesting. And his approach was so personal and engaging. And when I was making my college decision, I just kept thinking about that visit and thinking about Dr. Einstein. I enrolled, ended up declaring psychology as my major, actually did my own research within the psych department. And he, at one time, was my advisor, then went on sabbatical and advisors shifted and and actually was able to serve as a teaching assistant within the class that used the rat lab. So it was a very cool experience that sort of came full circle. It sounds like you both had really enriching experiences while in college. Can you tell me about the meaningful connections that you found there? Tia, do you mind kicking off? Sure. So I, you know, I've talked a little bit about Dr. Einstein, who was a wonderful connection at Furman. And hearing this question, I have to mention my best friends who all were on my freshman hall. So that was Blackwell 200 North for any paladins who are (laughs) listening. It was such a cool experience to have known those girls from the start. And we are still best friends. We travel together. We talk often. My husband is also a Furman graduate, and he was a student athlete, and we had really different college experiences and love the Furman part of our story. We love that that connects us and love that those relationships we formed at Furman still continue to be important in our marriage and in our friendships and our lives. It's just lifelong, those connections. And Kayla, what about you with Queens? Yeah, so I think I mentioned a good bit about how athletics drove my search process, but certainly I was focused on being a student athlete with the priority of student being first. And so my one that comes to mind as we talk about it right now, my admissions counselor, Jeff Bennett, was equally as important as my first college coach, Kevin Cook, who had recruited me. They both helped me find my home. So you've both sat on the other side of the desk which someone had to tell me meant that you worked in college admissions. How did you go from college admissions to college counseling? Caitlin, do you mind kicking off? Yeah, honestly, it's a natural transition. I think Tia can speak to that. I certainly loosely followed in her footsteps a few few years behind her. Uh, she was obviously here at Davidson Day when I started, but she made it watching her path and seeing her transition from Furman to Davidson Day made it seem easy and doable, attainable, and smooth. Yeah, you know, during my very first year in the admission world, 
it was pretty obvious that college counselors had a different, well, of course, a different role. I would say a better role. <laughs> I loved my work in admission, but watching college counselors work with the same students over a longer period of time in a school setting, in a school building surrounded with the culture of high school athletics and high school arts and just everything that entails. So I could see that from the start, that that was an interesting role and that that was sort of a very natural next step, as Caitlin said. My career, I didn't anticipate was going to be admissions and higher education. So I started my job at Furman in the admission office, planning for it to be one year and then go on to graduate school. But I loved it. And after my first year, I couldn't imagine leaving. So I enrolled in graduate school while I was working, pursued the degree in counselor education. But then I was in it. You know, we say in admission, you know, if you make it past the first two years that you're a lifer. And I think is true for Caitlin and me. So after six years at Furman, I was ready for the college counseling role. I wasn't as interested in the travel, which is a really significant part of an admission counselor's job. And so I searched specifically in the Charlotte area and was so thrilled when things worked out for me to transition to Davidson Day. There's a number of people at our school are in my position where they were born in other countries and the whole American admissions process is quite foreign. It seems to be a common trope in how the media covers the college admissions process where families and students are adding more and more extracurriculars to bolster applications to Ivy League schools. Can you share more about how this approach may not be the best for students as they conduct their search? There's so much you could say here. I was a presenter at a conference a few years ago and the conference presentation was titled Pop Goes Admission. And the focus was how admission is portrayed in pop culture. And the theme is that it was not good. <laughs> it wasn't accurate. It's not an accurate portrayal. We actually showed a lot of TV clips, a lot of video clips. One that we showed is when Zach Morris in Saved by the Bell gets a 1502 on his SAT, which <laughs> is not a score you can earn. So obviously unrealistic. And then another clip we showed from Gilmore Girls, where the main character, Rory Gilmore, applies to only two colleges, Harvard and Yale. So again, a pretty unrealistic scenario. The media uses shows and clips like that to perpetuate what I would say is one of the biggest misconceptions in college admission, and that is that colleges want well-rounded students. They really don't. What they want is a well-rounded student body. Ah. They need students who can be the quarterback. They need students who are in the music school perfecting their craft. They want students who are researchers, students who are dedicated to community service and to uh, making their community more equitable. That's something that is hard to sometimes see in a high school application, but I can tell you, you never see it by just a resume that's padded with as many activities as a student can handle. That idea that they need to do more and more and more obviously isn't healthy. <laughs> you know, for a lot of students, it's just exhausting and it's not sustainable if they're just looking for ways to fill a resume and looking for ways to fill their time. I think that's when we see students getting burned out. We see students 
struggling with mental health. There's a great documentary. It's called The Race to Nowhere. Mm -hmm. It's several years old at this point, but it addresses a lot of this in just a really powerful way, which I would love for our whole community to watch at some point. I think the right answer, what we would want students to focus on, are the things that spark joy, the things that they enjoy, the things that make them really happy. And when students are pursuing those types of activities, whether it's sports, technology, the arts, that's when they just naturally become leaders because they're enjoying what they're doing. And they very naturally help to make those organizations and make those systems better because they're thinking about it in their free time and they're energized by it and engaged with it. And that's something that on a college application can stand out because it's authentic, it's unique. And I think admission officers love that because they expect that the student is going to bring that same energy to their campus. The first time I heard that concept around we're looking for a, like a really well-rounded student body was on one of the calls that we had this year. It was someone, I think, from Washington University. And it was one of those light bulb moments thinking, yeah, of course, like that's, you're not going to find this in one person. But that seems to be the myth is that students, when they're applying for college, need to be everything. They need to be the right. high school quarterback. They need to be in love music. They need to also be starting a nonprofit. And when the myth is out there and it seems so strong, and it's being sort of perpetuated by media and, and all of these different things. How do you help parents overcome that belief that this is what my kid needs to do? It's not enough that they follow their passion and what they believe in. You know, part of what we do here is we bring in admission directors and admission counselors to say that and for families to be able to hear that straight from the source. So the event you mentioned was our college night for juniors this year. And we brought in Elena, who's our admission rep from Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, we have several college nights per year, and we're always looking for someone like Elena to come and to speak and to help families understand that, you know, admission committees and admission counselors are able to look at a college application and get a sense of who a student is and get a sense of, of what they're involved with. I think getting to know our students and what they're involved with as well as their families helps us to connect this. And so if you have maybe a family who is really passionate about the arts and supports arts and museums, you remind them that a museum also has a business director. It has a marketing and communications division. And so if your student's passionate in the arts, but maybe you have a concern about them studying in the liberal arts field, they can still combine their passion with purpose and with a job that contributes to that. And so same thing if we have a student who is really involved in the theater and explaining, well, every student can't take the lead role. There'd be too many leads on stage. Think about what we need behind the scenes, the lights. It's the same thing. A college campus cannot run on a whole student body of Pete Moores or Caitlin Barnes, they need a diverse student body who will contribute to a variety of the offerings on their campus and make each one of them unique, different, better, and stronger. So I think that's an advantage here is we get to know our families and our students and try to find those connections so that it makes sense to them in their day-to-day. I feel very lucky that I fell into a career that I really love and just have grown so much being in education. And Yet when I grew up, I really loved science fiction and 
everything to do with that type of movie making and animation and everything, I had no awareness that that was a career, right? That you could actually, there was people behind the actors and whether they were the model makers or whatever it may be, the business office or there's so many people, obviously now when I look at credits, I realize that, but Many kids grow up without realizing that, say, if it was that theater, that, yeah, there is a whole army of people behind the scenes making that happen. And so how do you help kids, I guess, sort of break away from like, you know, I can become a doctor, a lawyer or a banker, right? And that there are a trillion other options for them. I think it happens in the classroom. You look at what Joanna Gertie does in the theater with the students literally designing, building creating the sets, creating the scripts and the roles. So the way our students can get so involved in the classroom, whether academically or extracurricularly, they have a leadership role. You look at the way our student athletes take on their role as captain, it's much more than a title. And so I think we are have an advantage in that our we need our students to be active contributors, not just participants to the things that they're getting involved with. Do schools need to be more deliberate about that you can turn this into a vocation or do you think enough's being done? A great addition to a high school curriculum. I think a lot of that happens in college. You know, of course, I'm a attended a liberal arts school, a huge proponent of liberal arts education. And of course, the concept there is that you're taking classes in a really wide variety of fields before you're declaring a major. And, you know, a lot of that process for me was engaging in intro-level courses and learning about career opportunities and, and what was out there and what exists. We have software that we use with our students. It's called U-Science, and it's a really interesting series of games and questions to assess aptitudes and interests. Oh, interesting. And I think all in all, it, it can take up to an hour and a half to complete the assessment. can be done in small portions. And once it's done, our students have, gosh, a 30-page document filled with information about their strengths and the types of careers that would connect well with those strengths. And that's always a really fun report to sit down and talk about with a student or with a family. I love that it's a resource they have that they can hold on to and reference in the future. But to answer your question, I think, yes, more connection between classroom learning and what that can look like for a career I think would only be beneficial. I watched a video that was published on YouTube when I was interviewing here and you did this wonderful presentation to parents when we could be in person and you talked about a college of best fit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that that changes so much from student to student. And so for some students, it's a school that meets a, a bit of their criteria from an academic, social, financial, geographic, maybe athletic perspective. Some students, you know, are really clear about their interest and what they're hoping for from a college community. And we can label those things and then look for a school that, that meets that criteria. That's a good match. And for other students, you know, it's not quite that way. Other students are a little less specific. And a lot of times we'll hear students talk about 
the way a campus feels, you know, the way they felt on that campus, just sort of that very intuitive kind of internal reaction to a place. And they can't always put into words why they felt what they felt, but I think that's so important to listen to. And for some students, that is, in fact, the best fit, (laughs) the place where they feel most comfortable and excited to be on a campus and in a community. And how do you help parents expand their view of what colleges are available? Because you see the lists of like, these are the top 10 colleges. And sometimes people sort of very much zero in on my kid needs to go to one of these schools without realizing that there are 2000 or more. Is that right? Gosh, yeah, Yeah, at least. Of four-year colleges, accredited colleges in the US. So how do you help parents sort of expand their view? I think the parents here some of probably the best in the area. They are receptive. You hear them echoing the words that we say from ninth grade and 10th grade night all the way through senior night. And they really see this process as kind of like where their students tribe. Can you walk me through as if I was a ninth grade student or family? Can you walk through the college counseling process on campus and beyond? Yeah, so I think this is where my role in admissions and college counseling begin to blend really nicely. So we work with a new family. We work with Trent Brown in admissions, Debbie Taylor for student life. We're part of all the department chair meetings when discussing curriculum. And so whether students and families realize it or not, from the time they're welcomed into our upper school community, their college process has begun. And we like to kind of stay undercover behind the scenes for those first couple years. And that's intentional. Much of our work in the ninth and 10th grade years are in a group setting covering big picture topics. So new students, where they see us is when we're talking about their first year schedule. If we're building a house, it's the foundation of your house. And so prioritizing, there are five core academics, which we see as English, math, science, history, and world language. And then putting that together with their top elective choices. And their electives can be technology, visual arts, performing arts, and combining a schedule that's really challenging but not overwhelming, that's balanced and fits their interests and needs or what they're curious about at that time. And then moving through, they'll find themselves taking a PSAT each grade level, ninth, 10th, and 11th. And that's something that's really intentional when we build our student schedule in the upper school So they have that exposure to the college admission testing, and they may or may not see that connection as ninth and 10th graders, but certainly when we get to 11th grade, when we begin working with students one-on-one and identifying their relationship with their counselor and narrowing in on that, the process certainly becomes much more personalized, and the families really begin to see kind of the college world come to life. And so we're preparing them to be successful through all stages. In the college search, admission, enrollment, we look for them to be successful in the majors they're choosing, leadership roles they're getting involved with, they're looking for on their college campuses, and those ex- you know, social experiences. That's, that's an a, important part of what they're doing over the next four years. They're going to be in class, but they're also going to be building relationships. And so being in tune to how we can help them feel prepared for that. And so when you think about Freshman and sophomore year, we may not be overtly college counseling them, but certainly we have a hand in what they're doing and in tune to how it's preparing them to be the most competitive applicants when they get to their senior year, which senior year, as we know, is when the majority of their application 
is completed. What we can add is just like a little bit of a timeline. So, you know, ninth grade, we're working with students in large group settings. And it is to talk about things like the PSAT, how to evaluate your PSAT score, how to select an enriching summer experience and providing resources to do that. So there are meetings that typically we will join through advisory. That's the best time for Caitlin and I to chat with a whole class of students. And so that's ninth grade. It's just focused on helping them maximize their upper school experience. And then sophomore year, we do all of the same things we do with freshmen. And we also really encourage them to join in on our college admission rep visits, which happen in the fall. We bring about 90 different college reps. It's crazy. It is. And this year they still went incredibly well. We hosted those through Zoom and actually had more variety because of the virtual platform, which was really exciting. So that's, you know, sophomore year, we're pushing those personal connections a bit more. We start encouraging students to do campus visits and to attend college fairs. And then junior year, we really start with the more personal work. So we, beginning in second quarter, host college counseling seminars every week. Those are currently happening on Mondays, and our juniors know every Monday at 11.15, they're on Zoom with college counseling. And we're doing some educational work, helping them understand how to use college counseling resources to identify schools of best fit. And then we're also focused on action items. So things like completing an activity list, brainstorming a college essay. I tell junior families all the time that if our students are really engaged with those seminars, they will actually finish junior year with a really significant part of the application complete, you know, ready to copy and paste. And then as Caitlin said, senior year is just sort of all in with personal one-on-one meetings and communication and conversation about what each specific student is facing. One of the coolest things about working here this year has been seeing behind the scenes of this process. And what has made it so awesome is seeing both of you in action and the fierce loyalty. I've used that term a few times describing the two of you is like your fierce loyalty to these kids and helping them find the right fit is incredibly inspiring. And what is that moment like when you've worked with a kid, whether it's the four years or they've come in as a junior or whatever it may be, and then you've got to know them, you've got to know their family and you find the fit. And then, you know, there's a few different options that they're looking at. And then you find out that you've helped these people reach their dreams. What's that moment like? Often it's overwhelming. You know, I mean, I I sometimes feel this as if it's me. I remember checking my admission decisions and, you know, that anxiety that builds before you see as you're waiting and then the relief, the excitement that I felt with an acceptance. And I feel that for these students. And, and it's so great when you can see it come together and you know the hard work that's gone into every application and into every, you know, everything the application represents. It's incredibly rewarding and it is something that keeps this job exciting every year. There's never a scenario where two students have an identical process. That's so fun. It's so fun to watch the outcomes and to celebrate with each family. Yeah, I think I often say to students, you're doing it right if you do get denied somewhere. And that's part of the process. That means you're reaching. That means you are willing to take a risk, 
put yourself out on the line and see if that was available to you. And so when students, you know, exceed themselves and get a decision that maybe they weren't expecting that was better than they were expecting, that's like a win. That you had to push them a little bit and sometimes that's uncomfortable. But when that push gives them the opportunity to attend somewhere they hadn't thought about or just the fact that they knew they put themselves out there and tried, that's huge. That's the fun part. And then seeing their genuine excitement, um, hearing that, I'm actually going to go to college. Uh, and I feel like even though you tell them for the last three years, you will end up somewhere. Yeah. There is a college of best fit for you. We say that on repeat. And the moment for them comes to life when they get that first, congratulations, you've been accepted. And you see that aha in their in their minds and the world is now their oyster. And you know the opportunities are endless when they realize this is a reality, not just a dream. Together, you've spurred the founding and the implementation of the Lake Norman Area College Counseling Consortium. Can you tell us more about your work and your leadership in that? Yeah, that group really interestingly just started as a group of counselors who were meeting occasionally after school for a happy hour. <laughs> and it's a great place for anything to start. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, we just would get together and conversations were pretty organic and there were not agendas, but they were just meetings. And from that, we had the idea to make it more official and to connect in our own schools and to have an agenda and topics and to really tackle some serious things like admission trends, programs that we were implementing successfully or programs that we were implementing without much success and just to have that professional development. And it's really grown into something very cool. Like we've had several years now of joint programming. So every fall we have a financial aid night. There are eight schools in the consortium. And so we've all been able to work together to make that particular event a very full engaging event. And then we've also hosted three years of a case studies program with a college fair connected. And, you know, your ability to have a a big college fair is increased when you've got eight high schools represented among the participants and the attendees. So it's been really interesting. We've not been able to do as much as we'd like this year, but look forward to those events becoming more consistent again when we can meet. How has COVID changed things? You know, I think beyond the traditional answer of the Zoom world, what we've seen and what we've encouraged our students to do is to take advantage of the opportunities that are available to them. And we feel like more than ever this year, they have access to so much information on the college front. So their exploratory phase and researching these schools, although can feel overwhelming with how much digital information is coming at them. It's all there, and there is so much one-on-one conversation available, student-to-student chats, discipline-specific information sessions. And so while it's certainly not allowed students to walk a campus and get that feel, they've had the access to information in a really good way. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens once we are post-COVID, like how much of that access still remains available or whether it will become a little bit more restricted again. And it'd be interesting to see what everyone learns from this. What do you wish all Patriot families and all parents of school-age children knew about today's college admissions process? So I actually 
brought a book in preparation for this conversation, and it's a book called The Colleges That Change Lives by Lauren Pope. I could not summarize this in a way that did it justice, so I'd love to read it if that's okay. That'd be awesome. So the very first chapter is called Getting Beyond the Hype, and this is the intro paragraph. What does it mean to find a college that changes your life? The answer depends on you. But for all college-bound teens, the idea of a transformative college experience is an invitation to be bold. Don't fall for Ivy worship. Don't listen to the blather about best schools whipped up by a rankings game. Don't let your older friends' descriptions of fraternity parties and football games define what college should be for you. Be bold. Set your expectations high. It won't be easy. The national conversation about higher education is obsessed with outcomes. What do you get for your four or five or six years in college? A little piece of paper that says you did what the college told you to do? A bigger paycheck? An entree into grad school? A photo op with the college president? This question makes sense in light of how expensive a college degree is, but it misses an essential point. College isn't just about the end result. It's also about the means, the process, the path you earn to take your degree, whom you meet, and who inspires and mentors you. If the path is right for you, you'll get the piece of paper, the bigger paycheck, the acceptance to grad school, the photo op with the president, and more. You'll be a sharper, wiser, and better prepared adult. It so resonates with me. I was the first in my family to go to college and neither my parents went to college and then my sister went after me and it just changed my life in so many incredible ways. I went to the University of Wollongong, which is about an hour and a half sort of uh, south of Sydney and you had an option. You either lived on the ocean and walked about 20 minutes to the college or lived near the college and walked 20 minutes to the ocean. And it was such a beautiful place. I met so many, like the, you were saying before, Tia, about your friends at Furman and your husband from Furman. I met my wife there and it just opened up the world to me. And I think that that is sometimes is missed by people that this whole universe is going to open up and it's not just a piece of paper at the end. So, Caitlin, what is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? Well, as a college counselor, hands down, the colleges that change lives. What do you like about it? What we just heard from Ms. Hill, the opportunity to look at college in a different way, from a different perspective, in a really tangible way. As you read through the book, it gives biographies of schools from that perspective. So Tia, what about you? Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's a book that was given to me and I read it once and then actually bought four or five copies that I have at home because I wanted to be able to, to give them to friends. And how did you first come upon the book? So it was a gift from a friend a birthday, Christmas, something to that effect. And I just read it and it was a quick read for me because I was so interested. It's all about Viktor Frankl's personal experience in the Holocaust and then his life's work of researching meaning and how finding meaning in your life is a path to happiness and to being content. It's really interesting and it's really powerful. 
Caitlin, what are some of the things you love doing in your free time? Lucy. I don't think you've met her yet. I haven't met her yet. But Lucy's a dog that I spontaneously got my junior year of college. Honestly, she is easily one of my favorite. I call her a person. One of my favorite people in the world. And I love her most in my life. So beyond spending time with her, my husband, Matt, a close second. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoy, we enjoy our life on the water. We really enjoy surfing, wakeboarding, skiing, behind the boat, long rides on my paddleboard out of our cove, where we love soaking up the sunshine in the middle of the lake with friends. So we certainly yearn for summer. Tia. So for me, it's time with my family. I've got two small children, a two-and-a-half-year-old and a one-year-old. It's so, amazing. Yeah, they are all consuming when uh, I'm with them and, and in the best way. So it's just really joining in on whatever they're doing, which is either like imaginative play with the baby doll in the play kitchen. They've got a trampoline. <laughs> there was a Christmas gift from my brother-in-law that they currently love to just make me nervous <laughs> as they're using <laughs> They're so fun. I mean, they're just ages where they're constantly learning and, and constantly surprising us, you know, with what they know and what they can do. And if you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? Skill or superpower? Learning to read teenagers. Mm. That would be a great superpower. Yeah. What is going on in their minds? <laughs> Good luck with that and let us know how it goes. It's just the, uh, actually, I read this great book called Talking to Strangers and they were saying just how bad we are in general about reading other humans. And it's a fascinating read, a Malcolm Gladwell book. And I've been thinking a lot about that is like when you're looking at someone and you think you're reading them because of body language and everything is, it's phenomenal how wildly wrong we are most of the mm-hmm. time. And so I think it's a terrific superpower. And superpower or skill, we've changed the question a tiny bit, Tia. I think I'm going to say speed reading. You know, I currently have just a a stack of books I'd love to be able to get through and haven't quite done it. My shortcut is Audible and I put it onto like double 1.5 around that or sometimes a little bit more. And so then I can just churn through the books. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life? So pre-COVID, I was regularly practicing yoga. As a college athlete, the practice of slowing down and breathing was certainly not part of our workout routines. Um, Once I found yoga, I love hot yoga, a good sweat session. I was hooked. Tia. The importance of daily gratitude. Somebody gave me a five-minute gratitude journal. And I love it. And it's such a great quick exercise to spend three minutes in the morning jotting down what I'm grateful for. And then the journal prompts me to spend about two minutes in the evening to write about wonderful things that happened throughout the day. And I love it. It changes my perspective. And, you know, there's real science behind like what that does, the positive things that it's doing. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Certainly building relationships early. If you are a movie guru, it's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. (laughs) We are all connected. One of Tia's former bosses, Woody O'Kane, was also one of my bosses. We could go play this game, Mm -hmm. but this is rapid fire. So I'll pause. Build relationships. Build relationships. It's great in any profession. I say starting college admission, just like Caitlin and I did. Have that admission background first because it makes all the difference when you are in college counseling. 
And the last question is, what inspires you? So many things. This question I love because I'm thinking of my daughters and how much they make me want to be a better person. I think just like the resiliency we've seen through COVID, both at Davidson Day School and, you know, in the larger community, just so many cool stories of people being creative and thoughtful and creating meaningful experiences, even through such a challenging time. Our diversity forums, I love those forums so much, and I'm always just in awe of each speaker. To me, one of the coolest things that's come out of this year are those forums. And Caitlin, what inspires you? I agree with Tia. I think if you just look around and this last year has really given you the opportunity to notice and see the little things. And so those little moments, I hope I continue to hold on to because they have inspired me. I can honestly say that you both inspire me. And so I'm really, really grateful you've given up so much time today to do this. It's been a tremendous amount of fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pete. Thanks. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.